0: Welcome to the documentary from the BBC World Service, where we report the world, however difficult the issue, however hard to reach. Podcasts from the BBC
1: World Service are supported by advertising. In a world that doesn't pause, catching up isn't enough. The Financial Times keeps you one step ahead in your life and career. With breaking news, detailed analysis and a deep understanding of the global economy. Don't just keep pace. Set the pace. Fearlessly Pink. The Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless.
0: Hier draußen in freier Wildbahn ist der noch selten anzutreffen. Doch we haben Glück.
1: Willkommen bei McDonald's. Ihre Bestellung, bitte. Da
0: ein majestätischer Hamburger Royal Cheese mit saftigem Rindfleisch aus Deutschland. Nur bei McDonald's.
1: In allen teilnehmenden Restaurants not zu unseren Frühstückszeiten.
0: Lives Less Ordinary is the podcast from the BBC World Service, bringing you extraordinary personal stories from around the globe. Search for lives Less Ordinary wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
1: You're listening to The Killer's Council for Heart and Soul for the BBC World Service. This programme contains descriptions of violent crime from the point of view of the perpetrators of those crimes. How is it that you think you... Lost your control over your violence. You let that violence happen when that man, when you killed that man. How did that? Can those you can men, you say those men?
0: There were two men I killed.
1: Two. Can you See, remember? It was almost
0: unimaginable to, to me to try and figure out. I said I killed those people. There were three of us involved. I was drunk. And. I just got to the end of life. I can't even explain it. That's the terrible thing. I cannot explain how the heck I got into that situation. I felt exploited the first one, and I just—I can't even—I can't—I can't, I can't even say it, you know. No. But, I, but I did. I was responsible for that man's death. second time, he had like a fight in the mile, I jumped in, I was the bigger guy, and uh, we beat this chap up, and he died four days later. I was totally out of control, totally, utterly out of control. I look back and I think, well, why didn't you do this, why didn't you do that, why didn't you stop?
1: This is exactly what i hear other people who've killed say exactly the same thing mm. that at the moment that it happens it's all like a dreadful dream and actually you see that's it kind really of unfolding good. there's nothing you can do to stop it now it's that, just going to happen
0: when you're going down that dark path and you wake up i, I didn't even know this is the, the first one i didn't know it happened mm. i opened the evening standard and there was, there's was a news report this man was found dead i thought christ that's me that was me
1: yeah my so god that was me that was me An 18-year-old boy has been stabbed to death in what police have described... Was as bruised. A sensuous... There was
0: specks of blood on the wall. Our lives have changed forever. He will spend the rest of his life in a total... His
1: death was called a tragic waste of a life. So my name's Gwen Adshead, and I'm a consultant forensic psychiatrist and a forensic psychotherapist. All my professional life, I have worked with perpetrators of violence, and I work in high-secure hospitals like Broadmoor Hospital in the UK, working with people who have killed. But what sort of man would attack and kill a defenceless old woman? There were others
0: involved that night, and now, after another eight years of further inquiries, the investigation
1: has run out of leads. I still get flashbacks a fine and that we go. The teenager was killed in south-east London nearly six years ago. This is the thing about homicide. More than one life ends, of course, one life biologically ends. But all sorts of other lives psychologically end on that day, in that instant. Forever afterwards, it's life after death. He has committed crimes before that have included the killing of a young mother and her four-year-old daughter. It's a kind of extension of the Talmudic idea that when you take one life, you take the world entire and the universe is changed for everybody because that person is gone. And where would he be now? What would he be doing? Would he have children? It's a bit like an atom bomb, a nuclear explosion. Of course, the families of the victim get the full force of the blast. But that blast continues to radiate out, knocking people over and destroying things. It really is the most... It is the most extraordinary, most awesome and most tragic of events. (laughs) he gets into fights with other cats and sometimes of course we have to dispose of dead bodies in the house it was a nice Facebook meme roses are red, violets are tall I bought you a gift it's dead in the hall (laughs) Um, so this is home and I've lived in this house 28 years um yeah, this is also a room where I often do my mindfulness practice. I have books, books and books and books and books and books. Books about Shakespeare, books about the Holocaust, books about attachment, books about evil over there. I grew up in a house full of books. So a lot of my childhood I spent just taking books down and looking at books and nothing was ever denied me. Um, (laughs) apart from everything you want to know about sex, but were afraid to ask, which I was not allowed to look at, and so waited until my parents had gone out. Um, But, you know, words and ideas and thinking about words and thinking about ideas was kind of very uh, much part of my life. So there were sort of fairy stories, science fiction, and animal stories, Gerald Durrell. That idea about respect and love for the natural world was really very important part of my formation of my childhood identity and that sense of connection to the natural world as part of a I want to say spiritual but nobody would have called it that in my presence and I wouldn't have called it that either but I think that sense of the value of the natural world. But most of all, the sense of connection, what Ridd called the first incarnation, in that sense that there is something really very special and beautiful about the earth that we live on. And then I I remember reading the story of Anne Frank, and I remember being very interested in the Holocaust as a child. I did have an interest quite early on in what happens when people do bad things. And I remember even then thinking, you know, how bad, how bad can it get? How bad can humans be to one another? And of course, the answer is kind of pretty limitless, um, So the commonest kinds of violence that I would deal with are homicide, attempted homicide, severe grievous bodily harm. And I've also done a lot of work with women who've assaulted or mistreated their children in some way. I have particular interest in women um, who assault their children. She admitted causing and allowing her son's death. He had more than 50 injuries, including a broken back. She's convicted. She becomes Britain's most prolific child killer.
0: Yes. Serial killer seeking a ruling by the High Court to
1: deter. Already detained uh, in Broadmoor. He's a paranoid schizophrenic who's obsessed and, uh, with knives and likes to stalk young women and rape. And it was something she will have to live with for the rest of her life. I first became interested in working with violence perpetrators because I was interested in the law. I was actually interested in the kind of ethical issues about how should we deal with people who have done terrible things and how does mental illness affect people's responsibility for their actions, if at all. But once I started working in the field and meeting people who'd done terrible things, I really wanted to understand what it had meant to them to carry out these deeds. And also, if we were going to try and help them not do it again, what was that going to involve? There would have to be some kind of space where people would be able to talk about what they'd done and to think about it in a human way. And that's what redemption is is about life after the dreadful thing. What is life after you've killed somebody? How do you make sense of your life oh, thank you very much. Right. Okay, if you want to sit down over there, Owen, that would be cool. Would be nice. So often I'm the first person who's come along to say. No, I, I don't want to ask you what you did and I, what I want to know is what's on your mind today.
0: I wake up and think, I'm still
1: here.
0: Mm. I'm amazed sometimes I'm still here.
1: Well, you've known people who are not here 1,247
0: anymore. people took their own lives when I was in jail. I did think about it a couple of times myself.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I want them to become interested in their own minds and I'm just there as a as a as yeah a companion on the way. I think I'm a companion on the way.
0: So my name is Erwin James. I'm a writer. I've been a a Guardian columnist and contributor since 1998. Um, I was in prison for 20 years. I was convicted of murder. I became a writer in prison and wrote myself out of a really deep, dark place. Well, I've always tried to say if I could make a life out of where I came from, there's got to be hope. And hope in prison is dangerous, but no hope can keep you alive.
1: Yeah.
0: I didn't know this when I went in, you know, because I was, I was a failed human being. I mean, I mean, completely, utterly failed human being. I had no aspirations. I had no plans. I, I didn't know what re- rehabilitation was. I, I never imagined I would live again in, in in any sort of decent way. Um. But I thought I'm going to get busy living here. I'm going to find a way to live in this place. That's better than the way I lived outside.
1: Do you do you mind if I ask? You see, we had this idea about a bicycle lock and the idea that there are risk factors that come into play. For yeah. for violence to erupt, you've yeah. got to have four or five risk factors all lined up like numbers. And that we all have that potential, but most of us won't get Don't, there. Yeah. But I find myself wondering, looking back on it now, Erwin, what you think... The numbers were your bicycle lot risk numbers that took oh, you gosh. to a place where violence became possible, imaginable, even inevitable.
0: I had violence experience from a very young age, a very young age. My nose was broken three times before I was 19. I was uh, violently sort of interaction. I'm trying to be sort of use my words carefully from my yes. dad. Yeah. Who gave me hell, you know, that's why I left when I was 10 years old, I bailed out. But the thing is, I'd experienced violence from, not just when I was 10, I've, I experienced watching his violence.
1: Yeah.
0: My mother was killed when I was seven, and my dad took these, you know, took up with other, other ladies. And he he was very violent towards them, and then he violent towards me. So I experienced a lot of violence very young. I was convicted of burglary when I was 11 years old, just after my 11th birthday. And in the children's home we were in we all sort of thought of ourselves as criminals, but we we were just kids yeah. mish-mash of damaged kids you know what happened over the over the coming years afterwards, I became like him. I started drinking worst thing I could have done i was a, I was a fairly sort of quite a shy kid, get a couple of beers in me. I talked to the barman, talked mm. to girls, two more beers, mm. two more beers and I'd be fighting the whole world. You know, there's a whole lot of anger in me. You know, I caused a lot of pain for people. Being in... It's hard for me to say this, but it is a trauma that you have to live with. But there's no acknowledgement of that. You, you, I can't say I'm traumatised by what I did it, because I'm the perpetrator. I've, I've got to live with, you know, the program of, of, of society and, and my community.
1: Mm. So that lives are not here because of, because what, of what, what, because what was viewed. me. View. Because of me. Yeah.
0: I'd rather... I wasn't here and they were there.
1: But that isn't the choice on offer. And the reason I'm thinking about this particularly is that often as a therapist, I felt an enormous urge. You know, I wish there was something I could do to, to make them feel better. But of course, I can't. I can't forgive. It's no part no, of my job of not, no. to exonerate, even even if they were mentally unwell at the yeah, time.
0: Yeah, but you wouldn't even think about and exoneration. I think. I think, may I say, you know, what your job is to me, your job is let people to find themselves and find their own space.
1: Yeah.
0: But offering some understanding of the difficulty that that,
1: that is. People tend to start at the surface and, and work their way down, and they have to establish quite a lot of trust before they get to the point that they're able to talk about whatever the worst thing is. And the worst thing is often not you know, what any of us might think. For some people, you know, the worst thing might be, you know, you might think the act of the killing might be the worst thing, but for the person who's done that, it might not be that at all. I mean, it's it's tricky, of course, because I'm not able to share anybody's particular story, and they are all very unique in their own way. Um, no homicide is exactly the same as another. But I'm thinking of a man who came out of prison and he was very disturbed when he came out of prison and he immediately started using lots and lots of drugs and then he killed two people and the circumstances of the killing are a bit unclear. And... I remember him saying to me, you know, I killed those two people and I really don't know why I did that now. And he said it's been really hard on my mum. Because she's an elderly lady and, and now her son's gone away for got a very long sentence for killing two people and he was almost certainly grossly mentally unwell at the time but for whatever reason that wasn't recognized. But The things that bothered him most were that he didn't really understand why he'd killed these two people and what it had done to his family, to his mother, his siblings. Which makes me wonder then, Owen, what what about you? Were you ever offered any kind of therapy at all when you were inside?
0: Well, I wasn't offered therapy, but part of my 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 prison journey was this I had to see a psychologist. Now, I could have refused, but I just went along with the system. I've been banged up in Wandsworth for 23 and a half hours a day for a year. Got to, got to Wakefield Prison. So I'm on the wing, on A Wing, in Wakefield Prison. They call it Monster Mansion. 85 men on that wing, convicted of murder, child abduction, rape, one serial killer, me. I'm quite defensive. And I understand I've got to talk to people here, but I don't really want to talk to anyone. I'm told I have to see the prison psychologist. So I come up myself my cell one day, and I walk down the landing, and I see on a blackboard outside a converted office, Jones' office, um, my name, Psycho Callup. So I walk up. I knock on the door and walk in. She says, come in, sit down very petite lady big spectacles and her desk was against the back wall and the alarm bell for her to press if anything went wrong was on the outside wall so if anything went wrong there's no way john could reach that alarm bell and the first thing that struck me is that she trusted us because she would have to go through me to get an alarm bell and eventually she said you got to get an education i said i'm too thick i'm too stupid for education no no we're all born with the potential to be the best versions of who we are so i i joined the evening class english class that's how that's how this writing thing happened i was sure i was gonna fail but i possibly exam. i couldn't wait to get back to john's office i told you we're all born with the potential to be the best versions of ourselves That woman was amazing. Doing the work that you're doing now, Gwen, you know, but she gave hope to everybody on that wing. We we were the worst of the worst. We were a grim club. Mm. But she respected the dignity of our humanity. Now, that's difficult for victims and for the general sort of public to think that criminals and people who hurt people and terribly hurt people in my case are...
1: Human beings.
0: Are human beings,
1: how does my faith come into this story? <laughs> it's a really, it's such a, um, it's a big question. And I don't talk about it very often. Partly because so much contemporary discourse about faith is very distorted by deranged accounts of religion and, of course, the very real faults of much organised religion, which obscure the enormous grace that's available to us. The grace of living, the grace of interacting with each other and this beautiful world. Um, I'm a great fan of a writer and theologian minister, a man called Frederick Buechner, and he wrote that God comes to you in your life in the moments of your days, in the people that you meet. So for me, I have always assumed that all my work, meeting with offenders, this is all God coming to me in my life. And these men and women are my brothers and sisters. And we're invited to come and help our brothers and sisters as best we can. And not least of all because I think um, I find it very difficult to imagine doing this work without faith to ground myself in as a place to stand. That helps me then to have a kind of radical compassion, what I've come to think of as a kind of radical compassion. Radical because it's rooted, it's a radix, it has a root in the reality of our common humanity but also radical in the sense that it's rooted in the reality of of human cruelty that it takes that seriously and it's not all easter day it's gethsemane and good friday as well so i don't have to judge these men and women they are men and women who have lost their way, and if I can play a small part in helping them find their way back towards something more graceful, then that's what I'm called to do.
0: You have to remember, I wasn't a thinker. I, I didn't. Th- I didn't think I was a thinker at that time. I, I, I didn't think this is. There's a journey here mm. with this lady.
1: But you went back. And I guess I, I guess that's the thing that's really went, interesting is that went you went back and again and again. Some, and some again. guys didn't yeah. go back, no, back, but I no, did.
0: No. I started to look forward to seeing it. I know her, her, her job was to assess my dangerousness,
1: yes.
0: but so. she persuaded me I had value. She persuaded me I was valuable. That took some time. And she treated you like, I don't know, just a
1: bit like I was now chatting. Mm. Mm. Yeah, she I was genuinely like, interested I've, in what you had to say.
0: Absolutely. And she was Christian, by the way. I didn't know that to begin with, but gradually she sort of shared that with me. And and then I a strange thing happened. I started to feel good about myself. And I couldn't I couldn't handle feeling good about myself. Succeeding. Grey days at this, grey days at that. And so I stopped. And she came to my cell one day. She had keys. I sat on the bed. She said, What's going on? I said, John, I can't do it. I said, I I can't cope with feeling dreadful and feeling good. She said to me, you owe to your victims to do the best you can do with the life you have left. And she closed the door on me. And I sat there crying.
1: I think understanding that positive rehabilitation, helping people make good, make good in their minds, make good with their brains, make them people who can give to others. This is something that is honourable, is doing honour to the victims.
0: I hope so, Gwen. I hope so.
1: I sometimes think of my work increasingly as a kind of surgery where words are my, are my technical tools. But I'm hoping that my words and the interactions, the dialogue I have with this other person is going to help something change. And so I don't want to be distracted by getting too caught up in hating the patient, for example. But on the other hand, hating the patient, feeling disgusted, I need to notice that. I can't pretend it's not there. And I mustn't sugar it away by saying... You know, oh, he's God's child, you know. (laughs) You can't do the work if you look down on the patients or prisoners and say, well, you're, you're disgusting because you've done this disgusting thing. But I'm thinking of times when, you know, people have said, this must be horrible for you to hear. And I say, yes, yes, it is. It is horrible to hear but that's where we're at we both need to hear this out spoken out loud in order to see where the next step along the path goes
0: but Gwen, where did your care for people like i was where did that come from you know where does that come from your your interest in helping well and i've got to say helping people like i was to come back
1: well I mean, I think I I owe it in a way to my Christian education that said to me, we are all people who can go wrong. And there but for the grace of God go any of us, that if I hadn't had all the same experiences as you and had not had some of the very loving and educational experiences that I mm-hmm. used to say, that I would not myself have become a violent, angry person. And actually I recognize within myself sometimes cruelty and anger in myself. Yeah. And if that were left untapped, if that was fanned to a big flame that could grow. Yeah. So I think we have it in all of us. Do
0: you use religion in therapy?
1: No, but... That's
0: it. To me, that would be dangerous if I wanted to.
1: Well, exactly. It's delicate, isn't it? Most psychiatrists feel very strongly that you need to be very, very careful yeah. in exploring the patient's point of view or yeah. the prisoner's point of view, but yeah. not imposing your own. That's what yeah. John
0: gave me. She, yes. she gave me space to think th- there is a way to live, which is much better than the, the way I lived. Did, whenever, you? whenever I was in a situation which is challenging, I thought, "What would Joan think? What would Joan expect me to do here?" No, do not say, <laughs> you're not you're not going to be singing—that's for sure.
1: Since this programme was recorded, Owen James has died. The Killer's Council was produced by Sarah Cudden. It was a Falling Tree production. For heart and soul for the BBC World Service.
0: Take care. Thank you. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles, from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: In a world where change is constant, it pays to look beyond your borders. The Financial Times offers a global perspective to give you a deeper understanding of international markets and emerging trends. Broaden your horizons and widen your influence. Fearlessly Pink. The Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless.